Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. We are celebrating the life of the Grobber on the Windy City Podcast. It just brings a smile on my face to even say that. Even though Les is gone... Whenever I think of Les, I'm going to smile. And my history with Les, I was a part-time producer at The Score, 1999, and I would get assigned to produce The Overnight Show, which, of course, Les was hosting. And at one point, it was basically me and Lawrence Holmes who were both producing Les. And Lawrence ended up getting the full-time job to produce Les permanently, I ended up going out to WLBK AM 1360 in DeKalb to get myself on the air. And we were one of many who got their radio start producing Les. And it was the first time you would sit there by yourself answering the phones, and Les would give you an opportunity to talk. I mean, I think the show at that point was 1 a.m. to 5 a.m., so that's a long time and in the middle of the night, and you would get opportunities to speak and build a little bit of confidence behind the microphone and deal with Les, who I'm actually remembering one time he was screaming at me to hang up on some caller who he had taken on the air. He didn't like him. The guy's calling me back. It's 3 in the morning. I'm talking to him. Les is looking at me through the glass. Hang up on him. Hang up on him. And I'm trying to be a nice guy to this guy. Hang up on him. Okay, okay. I'll hang up on him. No problem hanging up on this fellow because you don't want to distract your host, which I probably didn't understand all that well at that point. But at one point in this whole less producing overnights thing, he asked me, hey, Mark, what are you doing this weekend? I don't know, Les. I don't have any plans. Great. You can help me move. And I'm sitting there thinking, dude, I would not help my friends move or I certainly wouldn't want to and I barely know you but I do have a feeling that your place is a disaster but okay I want to be your producer I want to move up in radio so yes I will move you so the move turned into a three-day move the first time I show up there I'm like less you don't have anything packed. You got a million freaking media guides. I don't know when or how we're even going to do this. And then it, somehow, some way, it, it happened. I had to bring in another friend. But at the end of it, Les, he basically overpaid us because he wanted to take care of us. And, you know, Les was not a wealthy guy, but he, he paid us both at least fairly well. And then he took us to Lou Malnati's for dinner. He wanted to get the low-fat cheese. I'm like, come on, man. Regular cheese, Les. Mark, you'll never know the difference. Okay, Les, low-fat it is. Let's go. But uh, that, I've never moved anybody else at radio other than the one and only Les Grobstein, who I can also think of other memories where one time I, I got an opportunity to call a Northwestern game, which was a huge big deal at that point, 
uh, for me, biggest opportunity I got into my career, Northwestern at Illinois on the road. Uh, there must have been a bowl game, and, and Dave uh, went to bat for me, and so I got to do the game. And Les saw me afterwards. You did a great job. I was in Florida. I was listening. It was great. I'm like, oh, my God, thank you. You know, it meant a lot hearing that from the Grobber, who was a great Northwestern fan, which, because he's an underdog, right? He's, he's, he is the ultimate in the king of the nerds, not a good athlete, against all odds, somehow, some way, making his way in the media business. Although when you read the stories, and I guess I had forgotten this, but he was going with a tape recorder to Wrigley Field when he was 10, 11, 12 years old or whatever it was. Uh, Work ethic, wanted it, direction. You know, Les knew what he wanted to do with his life, and he got to do it. 50 years of broadcasting. Uh, But so if you ever listen to Les's show, and or even if you didn't, this was just one quirky fellow who was... Just very kind to everyone. Anybody who got a star with him, Jordan Burnfield's going to be coming up on the podcast. Jordan, of course, uh, covered a lot of games and and was befriended by Les like everybody else. David Schuster, who worked with him all the way back at Sports Phone. Uh, his closest, I think, radio buddy in the last 10 years is Mark Grody, who's also on the pod. Uh, you know, Mark has been doing a phenomenal job honoring him on the air um, and uh, he's going to be on here along with Tom Share, original morning host at The Score. And Tom has got a huge affinity for Les and everything that, uh, you know, their careers crossed paths right when Tom got back to Chicago. And I think I mentioned Dave Ennett's coming up as well. Of course, uh, you know, Dave's been at WGN Forever and WBBM and was an original member of the Chicago Radio All-Stars with Les. Um, and I just think, listen, everybody that's on this podcast and everybody who really has encountered less you just smile when you think of him um and you make fun of him at the same time less is less like i heard mark say the other day uh you know you know you're around him there's just a little bit of t- a touch of halitosis i mean just i mean he, he never really you know he wasn't uh he wasn't manicured perfectly good old Les grobstein but uh that was him and it didn't matter so without further ado let's do this uh the order, I have no idea what order to put this in, but I'll just do it as I wrote it on my notes here. Uh, Dave Ennell will be up first, then Tom Scher, then Jordan, then David Schuster, and then Mark Rohde. Um, as I sat down with all of them yesterday and had a conversation about less. We are honoring the Grabber on DeWindy City Podcast, and it starts right now. Showtime. That's why it's, in my opinion, it's subjective, even though it is a stat and it's black and white. Bringing in my guy, sports director, leader, Dave Annett, who, Dave, you played on the Chicago, what did they call it? The Chicago Media Radio All-Stars. What were you guys called? <laughs> it was Chicago Radio All-Stars. I think Crass for short, which was probably, even though there was a little spelling to be desired there, it was probably somewhat appropriate. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, a group. I remember, Mark, we had green and white shirts, which, uh, Les Grobstein was able to somehow procure and distribute <laughs> to all the guys on the team. How did he? How did he determine who was the actual All Star? Do you remember getting a call from Les? Hey, Dave, it's it's Les. I have selected you for this team. I mean, how did it work? Well, I think it was pretty much uh, anybody who was covering sports and wanted to participate. 
Les had a pretty much of an open door <laughs> policy, as I remember. And that was back in the days when I was covering a, a lot of baseball. And I, I think uh, there were a lot of guys who worked for Sports Phone, which was yeah. a popular endeavor back in those days. And so I remember that I was one of the regulars, David Schuster, uh, who worked for a long time in radio at the score and um, covered a lot of games. Uh, Pat Benkowski, yes. a long time uh, Chicago. I think he was on that team, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, there were people like, I want to say Chuck Swirsky participated and, and a lot of people that you've probably gotten used to hearing over the years, uh, Les brought us all together. We would play uh, supposedly benefit games. I'm not quite sure <laughs> who benefited, uh, but I have no doubt that it was all well-intentioned, and we would play games against different uh, community teams. Sometimes I remember we played like the Chicago Sting a soccer team we played. I think a, the Bears had a had a, a bunch of uh, former players who put a team together, and we would play in in all parts of the area. I mean, I do remember driving to uh, far and wide to play in those games. That's amazing. I so there was. I was thinking it was like one game a year, but you had more games than that. And did you ever play in like at Wrigley and or Comiskey or anywhere like that? Well, there was, there was a game at Ridley, but I don't know if that was Les's team. I think he was part of it, but I think it was really the Cubs and Connie Kowal, who worked in the Cubs front office in the marketing department at the time, I think put that together and it was a Chicago media all-star game. Okay. And I know that I played in it. I think Dan Roan, because I, I have some pictures, Tom Scher, sent me a picture a few years ago, like a, a team photo, and it was myself and, and uh, like I said, Rich King, Tom Scher, I think Chuck Swirsky, I think Mark Greco, uh, and, and I'm sure Les was part of that as well. See, this is all my childhood, right? I mean, I remember, Dave, you coming to Highland Park High School to speak at Focus. I wrote you a letter and said, hey, can I come down to WGN and talk radio with you and you said yes and I'm like then I I I don't think I followed through because I was too nervous or whatever it was uh but and then you know for me and then I start working in media and uh and Les is one of the first people that you meet right and he was so kind and helpful to literally anyone he did not have I don't know if it was because he was picked on a lot or if just the, the good naturedness of it, but he was truly just a gentleman to everyone he, you know, and people made fun of him ruthlessly. Yet he, here he was trying to support literally everybody who was in the business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nice man. Never saw him get mad at anything or anyone except perhaps the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, I, he didn't get. Uh, annoyed, at least when I was around him, by the normal stuff that annoys most of us. Uh, I'm not saying that he didn't have things that bothered him or things that he didn't like, but I think overall, just a very good-natured human being. And I think you're right. I've talked to any number of people uh, since learning of his passing uh, who said, you know, hey, I, I met Less and he was always really nice to me and always had time and 
you know, I think that's really kind of uh, as good a legacy as you can leave, right, as when people say that about you. No no doubt. And he was a, a great fan, by the way, of the Northwestern Wildcats. I, if you wanted to talk cats with him, he was always up for it. No question about that. And so I would see less at games. Uh, it's probably the last place I saw him was at a game. And I'm not sure whether it was uh, this season or maybe last year. You know, he had a an award uh, for which he was the the curator, and it was the the um, Waldo Fisher Award. It was it was awarded to the MVP of the Northwestern DePaul basketball game when when I, when they met. And re- if you remember that series, they played every year, and then there was some bad blood for a while between the athletic directors, and they didn't play for a while. And then they renewed the rivalry several years ago, and they've been playing on a pretty regular basis, didn't play this year uh, because DePaul had to cancel the game due to COVID. But uh, Les was at every one of those games, and Les saw to it that that, that uh, award for the MVP was handed out, and he would pose for a picture with the – the representatives of both schools and the winner of the award. And, you know, that was really kind of a special, cool thing for a local rivalry. And uh, he took it very seriously. I, I'm just trying to imagine, how did he get that done? Listen, I want to create a award here, and I want to be the guy at center court that presents the award. Are you guys all good with this? Like Somehow he just knew how to negotiate his way through these things. Well, I will say, I didn't see people say no to less very often. He's a, kind of a tough guy to say no to, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure exactly. Maybe it was something other people didn't feel was high priority enough to worry about. So, okay, let's have less do it. But I thought it was a really nice thing, and I think it was great that, that he saw to it, that that got fulfilled every year. And uh, I would see him at games, and, and you're right. He he loved going to uh, to Northwestern. He started one of his first professional gigs in the business, as has been pointed out, was doing color on Northwestern basketball, and the games were carried on a small suburban station back then. This would have been the early 70s. And uh, he would he would do the games, and I think that was kind of his entree into the business. And I would see him, I remember seeing him at old Chicago Stadium uh, doing play-by-play into a tape recorder in either a Hawks game or a Bulls game. I'm not sure what, but I would see him there on numerous occasions. And, of course, he was the voice of the UIC for for a long time, their hockey program, their basketball program. And I knew less what he was doing, the Chicago Hustle games, a women's basketball way back when. So, I mean, he covered a lot of ground around town. And I know that it was something that I've – always marveled at his ability to be seemingly in multiple places at one time. Not sure how he did it, but there's no doubt there had to be more than one Les Grobstein because I don't know how else he could have accomplished it. Who who were the bruisers, which is another thing I saw on his resume today. I, I didn't even know the bruisers existed. Well, there were two iterations of arena football in Chicago. There was the original arena football league, which, uh, developed during the 80s, and they put a franchise at what was then the Rosemont Horizon. They were the Chicago Bruisers. In fact, I did some of their television games, okay. and Les was doing the radio. And, uh, yeah, he was the he was the radio voice 
of the Bruisers in the original <laughs> arena of football. And then the league went through some changes, then came back. If you remember, uh, they brought back arena football in Rosemont. It was the Chicago Rush, and they won the league. Uh, but at that point, I don't think he was doing the games anymore. But he had he had a long connection to the the Chicago Bruisers. Yeah, no no question. I I that's so funny because of course I remember the rush, but I I miss I miss the Bru- the Bruisers yeah. initial foray into arena football in Chicago. I don't know how I missed that, but I but I did. So you didn't hear Jim Grabowski and me doing the games then I, on TV. I I, I I I didn't, but I I would love to get that tape, Dave. If you have any available, I. I, got, I have I, some. They're on VHS. <laughs> no, I'm in. I've I've got time on my hands. Hey, you, just seeing the reaction, uh, Dave, before you go here, uh, so many people tweeting out things, Facebook posts, whatever. It it, it really it's it's kind of just nice to see how like just the media, and the, unfortunately, it's it's around you know it's just a lot of terrible things happening lately. Jeff Dickerson and 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 now less, but it it. it it, there really is just a, a unity in, in the appreciation form that I think brings a smile to a lot of people's faces. Yeah, and I'm just sad, really, Mark, that he's not around to see it because I think that he would have really enjoyed seeing the impact that he had on so many people. You know, that's the thing. You don't really know. And look, in this day and age, there's so much cynicism in this business and it, everybody likes to take shots at the opposition and there's a certain mean spiritedness to, to everything that seems to go on in the media. And you didn't hear that from less really. I mean, yeah, he, I think on his radio show, he had a couple things where it would be like uh, picking out the, the worst of the week or that kind of thing. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty common vehicle in, in sports radio in this day and age. But I don't think even that was done with the kind of venom that uh, you see in some corners. And I just think the fact that so many people were touched by less. And, you know, I, I, I do. I feel really sad that, that he's not able. Hopefully his family takes some solace from that and, and seeing the kind of impact and the kind of reach that he had. And that's something that, uh, look, let's, let's hope for any of us, hey, we hope to have uh, a longer life. You know, you hope for good health, you hope for a long life, but you also hope that uh, you leave people with feeling good about what you did. And I think that people look at what Les did and they will feel that way. No doubt. Well said, Dave. And I think you would say about like his bum of the week that they deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. They, that was good. <laughs> they were bums. I was It's not mean-spirited. It's a fact or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so. All right. Hey, Dave, appreciate the time. And uh, big win for the Cats with you missing a game. So go get uh, – see if we can get two in a row against Wisconsin. That was, a, that was a stunner to go up to Michigan State and win. But uh, they've, been, they've been in every game, right? They've, they've been hanging yeah. around. It's, it, it's, it was good to see them get one. Well, I, was, I hope it was coincidental that that performance <laughs> came with me not there. Let's put it that way. The, that cannot be true. There's uh, – listen, you, you were – you were there when they beat Vanderbilt in the tournament, Dave, the, which I think. That's, thank you. I feel better now. I, I needed to remind you apparently of that. All right, <laughs> Dave, appreciate it. All right, thanks, Mark. 219 area code. Hey, Les, what is a quality start? That's obviously a baseball term for pitchers. And I got to tell you, that is all subjective. I think if a pitcher goes into the sixth inning now 
and keeps his team into it, doesn't give up more than, say, three runs. It's, it's not con- subjective. It, it, well, it depends on what you want to say. I mean, no, who, it's a who, stat. It's a stat, but who said that that stat is all that accurate? So I wrangled up Jordan Burnfield, who there's the WGN Bears covering crew who sat next to Les. That's like one way that we got to know Les amongst the other zillion press conferences, right? I have said to many people that covering the Bears, sitting next to Grobber, was infinitely better than the games. <laughs> I mean, the games sucked for the most part. But sitting, I, I mean, you know that seat. You were sitting between Les Grobstein, David Schuster, Mike Esposito, George Offman, Lawrence Holmes, and then J.D. was on the other side professionally actually doing his job. The rest of us were sitting there basically letting Les entertain us because he had this, like, incredible, youthful Bears love and Packers detest, like, complete hatred of the Packers. And it was so incredibly funny. Like, he was the kind of person who wasn't trying to be funny always, but was hysterical. How many times, or what was the biggest food item that you ever saw him take out of the press box? Because <laughs> I can remember sitting, I think it was at a Cubs game, <laughs> and there were like leftover cheeseburgers or something at the end of the day. And he took, I don't know what, I think he took like six of them and like took out the meat ate the meat, and then said, great, now I have bread for sandwiches for later because he kept the buns to take home. So and I'm like, you're kind of a disgusting human being, but a genius at the same time, Les. That's great. Now you have now you have bread. So I'll, I'll give you a couple stories. One, so you know, this is a little inside baseball, but you know, like in the Bears press box in the front row where we would sit next to Les, there was like a diagonal glass window that would come down. And there was the desk that you'd sit at, and there was a ledge and sort of a space that you could theoretically drop something over the desk, and it could get stuck or wedged between the apparatus that was holding up the desk and this glass window, which was on an angle. So one time, I'm sitting next to Les. It's a noon game, so they have this, like, breakfast buffet of some kind and a bunch of pastries. And he had a plate that was filled only with pastries. And he dropped the plate of pastries over the ledge, and it was wedged down a good five to eight feet between this window and the desk. And instead of just, like, letting it go or trying to grab them and throw them out, he was, was like, knees on the table, reaching over to grab the pastries to then save them to eat later. And then there were other many other times where he would have some kind of food item that would sit on his plate the whole day only for him to later put it in his briefcase <laughs> to take with him. And it was the I mean like he will I will say this he was so nice to young reporters. Yes. And when I was a young reporter who was an idiot and didn't know what to do, I was trying to figure out, 
you know, how to act, how to be in the press box. Wouldn't necessarily say he was the great ex- greatest example of that. But what I would say was he treated anyone that was there like they were the most important person in the press box. And so, like, if you were a kid who grew up in Chicago and you knew who he was, which everybody did if you were getting into the business, he was incredibly nice to the young people. And when I was covering the Bears, I was this very young reporter. You were also at the score for a while, and you were doing morning show updates, which meant that you were the transition with <laughs> yeah. less at 4.45 in the morning. Like, you'd get in there, yeah. and, and here's first thing you do is talk to Les. But the, the funny part about it was everyone kept saying to me, when you do the transition with Les, that you can't be prepared for it. And I was like, what do you mean? And I would always, like, you know, come in, and obviously I'm doing the updates, so I'm preparing all my stories, and I knew everything that happened the night before. He goes, they were always like, that doesn't matter. He's going to talk to you about whatever's on his mind for 15 minutes. And so sometimes it was referencing Northwestern football games from the 60s that I obviously didn't see because I wasn't alive. Sometimes it was random players in the 80s that I had maybe heard of, maybe not. Sometimes it was a movie that I'd never seen. And so, like, I was just trying to navigate Les's world <laughs> – from 4.40 until 5 o'clock. But the I did also once get to host his show, and it was an experience. And the one thing that I have remembered and the memories have sort of come flooding back to me today is I have never and will never in my career unequivocally host a show filling in for someone more beloved than him by his audience. There, there is literally no chance because the listeners were mostly offended that I wasn't less. That was the first two hours. And then it was just people that were consistently more angry that I wasn't less until the end of the show because I was filling in last minute and I didn't know where he was that night. So I couldn't explain this to anyone. I was just told to be there and I had one caller hang up on me another caller tell me to shut up because i wasn't less they adored him he was the king of the overnight well and it's such a flip to put anybody else in that seat because you're probably talking about actual recent sports yes and, and that and was they, not they, what they want they don't want that no they they want <laughs> they want a very comfortable voice and like literally everybody on his show which i i know we we both listened to many 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 times Everyone who called up, they were like they were a guest. Let's go yes. ten minutes <laughs> with with Tom in Oak Park for ten minutes. Tom, how are you? And 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 or and, whoever. Uh, I mean, I, right, I can't. Right. No, there, there was were. a point where I knew at least ten callers by name and city because they called every night, and so it was there. There was nothing like it. And I will tell you this, like after hearing of the passing and how sad I was this morning to hear about it, I was thinking about times where I'd be driving home from a game late at night after covering a game or driving back from a concert. Even more so, there were times when I'd be like leaving Alpine Valley and driving from, you know, Wisconsin from East Troy back to Chicago, which is two hours almost, and you'd be in the car and I would listen to Les the entire way one, to right. stay awake, but two, because it was so funny that I knew that I wasn't going to fall asleep. So, you know, you'd get the for that you suck and the bum of the week 
and all this stuff. And it was brilliance, utter brilliance. And he will be missed. Like, I think there are certain people of yesteryear that were personalities that will never get back in this day and age. And he was one of them. No doubt. Jordan, thanks, brother. Yes, no problem. I don't agree with that particular stat per se. When I started in radio, I was an intern for this great man. Tom Scher, how are you, my friend? All right, Mark, I'm good. I'm sorry we're having a visit under these circumstances, but it's always good to talk to you. Yeah, no question, but uh, let's let's honor Les. And I, I heard you this morning on the score, and you know when, when I started interning for you, there was no overnight show, and I can't even remember. When, when did overnights even start? Do you remember the year? Well, I would... Probably around 1997 when they uh, got 24 hours over on the 1160 frequency. Uh, I know that you know the transmitter was on full time, and I'm. Uh, in fact, I can tell you that's when Les started. Now that it rings a bell, he started then. And uh, there's a great article written by Ben Jaravsky in the Reader, which was published in 1997. You can find it online. Les Grobstein, the Reader or Chicago Reader, and it's a great profile of the guy and he was doing overnights at that time so he started it then he went uh till about 06 then there was a guy running the score who had no idea what he was doing a guy named harvey wells a complete clueless moron and he got rid of less which was really stupid and then uh mitch rosen who i think does a brilliant job running that station i mean come on mitch has been there what is it now 16 years almost so he wouldn't be there if he didn't know what he was doing he brought Les back, and that was just a brilliant move by Mitch, and Les, you know, was there ever since. When did you first meet him, Tom? What's do you have any what's the, like what's my first Les Grobstein oh. memory? <laughs> well, this is my favorite story, actually. Um, I got here in nineteen eighty three <coughs> and uh, my first event that I covered was a Chicago Blitz football game on a Monday night. And after the game, Soldier Field, August of uh, late, pardon me, April, late April of uh, uh, 1983. And after the game, we're all up in the press box working, and the uh, Blitz PR director, a guy named K. Fred Schultz, used to bring out a tray of sandwiches late at night because the media, you know, you get a little hungry after you've been at the stadium for six, seven hours. So he's got these tray of sandwiches. We all dig into the sandwiches, and they're wrapped in cellophane, and they have a sticker on them which says, got the team logo and it says Chicago Blitz Skybox Catering. Okay, remember that. Okay. So now, a few days later, we're at Hallis Hall for Bears mini camp. And we're out there on the field and it was an unusually warm day late, you know, in the spring and we're we're out there for a longer time than we expected because Dick had decided to go along with the practice. Can't leave to go grab something to eat and come back because you might miss Dick and you just got to stay there. That's what you get paid for. So we're just starving. And I'm, I'm telling anybody who will listen that I'm really hungry. And Les hears this, and he comes over. He says, well, I got some food. You want, you want some? I said, yeah, great, Les, great. I had just met him that day at the Bears minicamp. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a sandwich, which is wrapped in cellophane. And he takes a half, and he's just about to eat it, and he's offering me half. And I look, and I see on the wrapper it says, Chicago Blitz Skybox Catering. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. That sandwich has been in his pocket or his car or even his fridge. Who cares? For three days? Two and a half days? So he's eating a sandwich and there's shredded lettuce flying all over the place. He's like, hey, you, you want half? I, you know what, Les? Uh, I'm, I'm good. 
I'm good, pal. Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. And that's when I first met Les Grafstein, offering me a two-day-old sandwich that he pilfered from the Blitz press box in 1983. God bless him. See, and I, I was having this conversation with Grody, like, that is weird, but yet he didn't know it was weird or he didn't care that it was weird? Like, <laughs> like, like what? How do we try to understand the mentality that he had around these things? Just strictly routine, you know, for less. Same thing as if he's telling you, you know, I saw Mark Carmen the other day. We were at a Blackhawks game. You know, I went to the Blackhawks game uh, on June, uh, January 14th, 1972, and Cliff Coral scored three goals. And, you know, he'll, it's, he's just very normal to go off on tangents, very normal to, you know, grab a couple sandwiches and squirrel them away for future use, very normal to, uh, you know, keep a scorecard even if he's standing in line at the supermarket. He would write down who was buying what. You know, he was, he was an unusual guy. He, as I said in the Tribune today, he had his eccentricities, and don't we all? But, you know, I don't want to get lost in the shuffle that he was extremely good at what he did. He was, and Bernstein said it great on the score. The, Les Grabstein was a very good broadcaster, a very skilled broadcaster. And I will tell you, he's the hardest working guy I ever met. And uh, he was extremely knowledgeable and uh, very nice to everybody. Nobody ever had a negative you know, personal feeling about Les Grobstein. He might think we were a pain in the neck once in a while. We might think he's a pain in the neck. He's a goofball. We're a goofball. Fine. But at the end of the day, everybody liked Les. See, that's an interesting point, too, that he was a skilled broadcaster. Because Oh, sure. It, it, people don't talk about, oh, he's, he's able to talk forever. That's what you would hear. But not so much that, like, he's comfortable in front of the mic. He just knows exactly what he's doing. However you would define what he does, like I, I don't hear that enough around him. That's I, I really I, I like that you brought that up. Yeah, and I was really, really glad that the other people mentioned it today. He was very good at it, and uh, he understood the medium. You know, he started off as a stringer in the late 70s, and people don't use that term anymore. It's freelancer. You're, you do you get paid by the report, or if you do an interview, you send it in, you get paid by the interview, and – uh, he was doing that for AP Radio, UPI Audio Service, uh, ABC Network, and I think one other, maybe Mutual. And um, a lot of us started as stringers. I started as a stringer in 1977. So, and Les was doing it before me, because when I would call in my stuff to one of the networks, AP, I remember they said, yeah, you know, we got four or five guys we rely on around the country. You know, you're in Boston. That's where I was at the time. You're in Boston uh, who is in New York? Uh, shoot, it uh, doesn't matter. I can't remember that guy. Pretty, pretty well known. Um, hold on, it's going to drive me crazy now. Um, all right, forget that. But anyway, uh, Barry Landers, Barry Landers okay. in New York, so and so here, and Les Grobstein in Chicago. And I remember thinking, there's a guy named Grobstein. <laughs> I mean, that's such an unusual name. Usually, you change your name on the air, and Les never did because he was true to himself, and that's when I first heard of him. We were all stringers, and he turned it into a full-time job at uh, Sports Phone. Then he went to WLS, had a great run there. Then over at 1,000, and uh, then over to the score. It worked out super, really. And, again, I can't stress enough. I, I, you know, this is a history people just either don't want to remember or forget. It's, he got screwed at the score. That guy, Harvey Wells, really treated him poorly, and, and Harvey was proven to be an incompetent manager because – he made six major programming changes, and five of them were a disaster. One of them was great, pairing Bernstein with Boers, but the other five didn't work out very well at all. They were a disaster. 
and he got rid of less. That shows you how dumb the guy was because Mitch, I can't stress enough how important it was that Mitch Rosen brought less back to the score, just a really spectacular move. And uh, for less to have a home there, you know, he may not have made a ton of money, but he had a home there and he was able to do what he does best. And uh, he was very important. Overnight, people might scoff at overnights. Whoa, 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 whoa. Overnights keep the juices flowing, babe. They give the morning show a lead-in. They keep people interested, especially in the Midwest. There are a lot of people up and on the road at 4, 4.30 in the morning, 3, 3.30, the overnight people, and even the early morning people. My brother-in-law is a doctor. He used to get up at uh, 4.30 in the morning and listen to Les. So my, one of my attorneys, uh, Scott, a good buddy of mine, he said he went through law school listening to Les, and then he had – a child of his pass away, my friend Scott, and, you know, you're up at night, you can't sleep. It's a terrible thing to lose a child. And he would listen to Les Grobstein every night. So it was very important that the score had something worth listening to to offer in the overnight slot, and Mitch Rosen was smart enough to realize that and bring back Les. I heard uh, Parkins on the air today saying, and I had and Jordan's on this podcast, Jordan Burnfield, who filled in one time for Les, and both of them said the same thing. The the audience hated them because they weren't less. Like the, he, had, <laughs> you know, they, they were they they were loyal to this dude. Like you're not less. Get out of here. Where's the right. grabber? Right, right. That's a very good point. He he had he was an idiosyncratic guy catering to an idiosyncratic audience because overnights are different. And Eddie Schwartz was fabulously successful on WCFL and then WGN for years. He went over to 1000. That was a mistake. He, Larry Wart gave him a con job and they brought him over there. But uh, Eddie did very, very well uh, on GN fabulously well. And, uh, and before that, I think it was on CFL. Yeah. And he, you know, knew what his, who his audience was. And I think those days are gone. Not many stations do live local overnight shows. Another reason to applaud the score for having less on and for, you know, Mitch Rosen to find the budget. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a unique thing. There just aren't many of those. And it's all syndicated network stuff most of the time overnight, but not with Les Grobstein. Yeah. I think the only two stations in the country that do uh, local overnights are the score and, and WFAN right now. And I, I, who knows what Mitch will do going forward here. I would assume they would try to keep it going, but that's, I hope so. And I just saw at FAN Steve Summers retired. He did their overnights. He's a very popular guy. They're just like Les, a very idiosyncratic guy. And uh, I, I don't know. I want to say something else about Les. May I, um, yeah, please Mark? Yes, please. I, I, I mentioned this on David Hawes show this morning, but I don't expect everybody to hear everything out there. Les Grobstein was a professional with integrity. And in his work, I mean, yeah, he, he liked the He was always into the sports collectibles and he probably didn't make a lot of great decisions on how he got a lot of that stuff. That's separate from his broadcasting work. And he, he, I mean, he hoarded a lot of stuff. I don't mean he did anything, you know, terrible, but as a broadcaster, he was a professional and he cared about standards and practices. And he stood up for the industry. People forget this now. Sports writers love broadcasting now because they make a lot of money from it. And you'll have writers who go back and forth from writing to radio to TV, sometimes all of them in the same day. But back in the 70s and the early 80s, right into the mid-80s, the, the writers hated the broadcasters. They didn't want us around. And for a long time, the Baseball Writers Association of America controlled access to the press boxes. Major League Baseball gave them that power going back to the 1920s. 
And they didn't want us in there. We couldn't go in the press box in certain ballparks in the 70s. Finally, they built some bigger press boxes and there was more room, but we were put in the back row. The writers told us where to sit, this and that. Gradually, it changed. And Ned Coletti, the Cubs PR guy, was a big force in changing that. When they built the new Wrigley Field press box, Dave Van Dyke, a writer for the Sun-Times, told uh, Ned, here's how we're going to do the seating. And Ned said, no, here's how we're going to do the seating. We own this press box. We're doing it. And that's how the control went to where it should go, you know, to the ball clubs. I'm pulling a Grobstein. I'm digressing. <laughs> but, you know, Les was big on tangents, and I guess so am I. But back in the uh, late 70s, early to mid-80s, the writers would try to keep us down, keep us out of there if they could. And in the 1984 Cubs playoffs, they didn't want to give us adequate workspace in the auxiliary press box. And they didn't want us to have access to the interview room. Couldn't even go in there, believe it or not. Couldn't ask questions. We had to listen to it on a TV feed. So we got wind of that, and Grobstein was really upset, and he wanted to get a lawyer. He, he, he consulted with an attorney. He wanted to file for a temporary restraining order against the baseball writers and the Cubs and the National League, which ran the playoffs. It, it was bad for a couple weeks because we knew the Cubs were going to get in. And he got me, and I think it was George Offen. the three of us worked together, had a loose association and of broadcasters, and we ended up getting what we needed. And that was a big deal, and Les spearheaded that. I did the negotiations. He wanted me to handle that. He got the legal consultation and everything else and got some raw data that we needed, and we, we pulled it off. It worked. And out in San Diego, Bill Beck was the PR guy out there, and I negotiated with him, and he was wonderful. He was better than, than uh, a lot of other teams were. So that was all Les. And I just want people to know that he really stood up for the industry. He really cared. Was Red Motlow involved in that at all, Tom? He was part of the group, but he was not involved in it. Okay. Um, he, well, he, he went to the meetings, and he gave us his advice and counsel. I don't want to mislead, but there's only you can only have so many cooks stirring the soup. And uh, he, he wasn't one of the cooks, but he was definitely one of the people who were part of the group, for sure. Yeah, because Red was a family friend of ours. and uh, Yeah, he and was a good man. He, he was a total grinder. And I just, I'm just thinking about that era of, you know, from Les to Jerry Cook to Schuster to Red. And, you know, and I guess, but you know, you're you're in there, Tom, because you were doing the stringer stuff before TV and, and being a talk show host of the score and all that. Yeah. It, it's, well, it's, a, it's, an, it's a unique collection of people doing a job that's just not going to exist, right? That, that's correct. Radio sports reporting, I mean, you've got basically one guy at each station. Now, there used to be two or three at each of the all-sports stations, and every station in town would have one. Um, that's, that's gone. You're absolutely right. I mean, guys like Tom Green and, uh, you know, Les was a WLS for a long time. Those stations don't do any sports reporting now. It's, it's more of a specialized thing. They pretty much concede that real estate to the uh, all-sports stations. I get it. But even the all-sports stations don't have as many reporters. Um, <clears throat> you know, I worked at uh, WGN. I, I was in Bo- Boston. I was a stringer. And then I worked for the uh, Red Sox and Bruins station out there. I was there seven years. Then I came here. I worked at WGN and WBBM. So you know, along with Rich King, who I think was spectacular, we were all together in this. And um, we all went on to do other things. Most of us got into television. Most of us became talk show hosts. You know, I did both. Les became a talk show host. But he cut his teeth right in the trenches. And that was quite a Quite a group of people back then, you know. See, Mike Greenberg started out as, yep. as a radio sports reporter. He used to come down from 
WMAQ radio to get audio for me when I was at Channel 5. We would share, you know, audio and stuff. And, um, you know, look where Greeny is now. He's been a great star and deservedly so for years. So it's just great. And, and, and people like Les never forgot anybody. He was a good guy. He remembered everybody. You, and I'm, I, I'm sure every interaction, as we wrap up here, Tom, I'm sure every interaction he had with you, he was praising you for something, right? Tom, that yes. was great. Right, that, that was him. Yeah. I used to call into a show once in a while. My wife and I called him on New Year's Eve one night. It was hilarious. <laughs> and you can hear my, my wife, Lisa, says, hi, Grabber. <laughs> and we would see uh, Les and Kathy at concerts at United Center. Um, Les was good friends with Joe O'Neill and some of the United Center and Bulls people and Blackhawks people. And uh, we would all just be hanging around, having a beer, you know, in, in the concourse there. And it was always nice to see him with her. He was with Kathy for at least 25 years. Uh, and I think that was great, you know. Um, as, as, as people know, it's a tough business, and it's great that he had somebody by his side for so long. And his son is doing well, and that's fantastic. And Les is very proud of Scott, his son. I want to, can I leave you with one funny story at the end? All right, please. All right. So we're at the Bulls games in the height of the Jordan era. And anybody who goes to the Bulls games know they have the Dunkin' Donuts race and all that stuff. And you get the card when you come in. So it's either number one, two, or three, or various characters. You know, let's just stick with the numbers here. So number one, number two, number three are going to win this, this race up on the big jumbotron. So I knew that they gave the winning cards. They gave a copy of the winning cards to the Lovables cheerleaders. So the last thing you would see on the jumbotron would be a live camera shot from the, the floor camera that the Bulls had. Um, of the lovables flashing the winning card and, you know, looking all happy. Okay. Number three, you win, you know, a box of Dunkin' Donuts or whatever it is. So I knew the cameraman, a guy named Andy, who's deceased now, wonderful guy. And I said, Andy, take a look at whatever card the lovables have and give me a hand signal. Let me know who's going to win the Dunkin' Donuts race. (laughs) So I'd be sitting with Les at the press table and we would, be, we would bet every game, only $2. Les would never bet more than $2. We would bet every game who's, <coughs> who's going to win the, the Dunkin' Donuts race or the dot race, whatever it was, one, two, or three. So we would each pick a number. Each guy would alternate who picks first. And if neither one of our numbers came in, of course, nobody wins anything. doesn't matter. So I knew every winner before we bet. So <laughs> if Les picked my number, well, too bad for me, I would – no, it's a winning number, but I would pick another number just so I could lose once in a while. So he never ca- caught on. And I took him for about 50 bucks one year. <laughs> so finally, I couldn't stand, I couldn't stand it. My conscience was killing me. So we're at Harry Carey's one night and Les was in there having dinner and I was having dinner and I picked up his tab for dinner and he comes over and he says, Hey, you didn't have to do that. What are you, what are you doing? I said, Les, I got to confess to you, you know, all that money I won from you. <laughs> About five years ago at the Bulls games, I said, yeah, you took me for 40 or 50 bucks one year. I said, I know. I knew who the winners were going to be. <laughs> and he just laughed his ass off. He thought it was hilarious. Of course, I had just paid for his dinner, so I, I made things right. But it was it, it was the funniest thing, and he could never figure it out. And I did that for a whole season at United Center. I, I love every bit about that story, and especially that you just 
Nobody remembers the dot race, Tom. It was it was the dot race before it was the Dunkin' Donuts race, and the sta- right. the stadium would go nuts. There was three dots go- <laughs> going around this this old scoreboard, and people they'd fling their cards up from the second balcony on down, and it was it was <laughs> end of the third quarter. The dot race was a thing. But Phil George F on the call. That's uh, right, and he still voices it, Phil. He's retired down in Arkansas. Another great guy. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's a ton of fun, Tom. I appreciate you making time. And uh, when I woke up this morning and heard the news and I've listened to the show and you get on there, I'm like, this is, you, you really, you, you, you did a great service uh, in honoring him. So, and I appreciate you doing it here. Well, I'm glad David Hall was interested in what I had to say. And Dustin Rhodes, the producer, were very gracious. Uh, they did a wonderful job on the score at the morning show all day. Middays, Grody was subbing fabulous. He's getting his due and he deserved it. I just, Overall, I have to be honest. You know, we're having fun, we're laughing, but I'm I'm really sad. 69 years old. That's that's too damn young. Yep, yep. The tributes yep. too, just seeing it coming from everywhere is a, it's a it's a really it's just nice to see. Yeah, it is, and I appreciate you having me on, Mark. It's always good to be with you. The people that determined that it's now a baby planet. What authority do they have? What qualifications do they have? So there's no one else I'd rather talk to about less than a man who probably spent. One too many hours with less, but would like to have a bunch back all at the same time, right, David Schuster? That that's a that you were you were with less for literally forever in radio. <laughs> Seemingly, yeah. To be honest with you, shoulder to shoulder for well over four decades in in every press box imaginable, on the road, in his filing cabinet, on wheels. <laughs> I, I mean, his car. Um, so yeah, I, I got stories galore about less many i can't tell here on the radio mark um but honestly a friend as much as, as anything else i mean as i said on my facebook or twitter page there's millions of stories about less some you can tell some you can't but you know what i'll always remember about less is he had a good heart and a good soul uh and a lot of people i i wish would remember that because uh, i certainly do yeah and i was thinking about i mean when I started out in the business, like a lot of people, you're a fill-in producer, and if you're at the score, you're going to end up producing Les's show. And Les is going to be a great person to you. He's going to make you feel comfortable. He's going to give you airtime. He's going to do everything he can to make the experience a pleasant one. And that's not always the case when you're getting into radio. You get you you end up on an afternoon show, uh, the, 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 the pressure is instant. And not that you don't feel pressure on the overnight, but it's, it's like, hey, you can either do the job or you can't, and, and if you can't, get out of here. That was not the way it was with Les. No, I mean, Les, Les honestly was very gracious. I mean, there's a lot of people in our industry, no names need to be mentioned, you know, who will pretty much stiff arm you, uh, you know, whether you're a producer or a board op or even just a fan coming up to them. Les was not that way. Les was just, you know, the 180 degree antithesis of that. He would be friendly with everybody. He loved talking to people, um, a little goofy sometimes, but he was always friendly to everybody, um, you know, uh, and, and helped people in the industry. A lot of people also in the industry are not so helpful to others, but that, that wasn't the case with Les. Uh, again, Les had a good heart and a good soul, and, and I preface everything that I say about him with that because it, it truly was the case. Yeah, I mean, Les was all over the place, and he was uh, an oddity in a lot of ways, unique, one and only, Ripley's Believe It or Not, you can use all those phrases. But, again, good soul, and that's always what I'll remember. Do you remember the first time you met him or any, like, early interaction? Yeah, I do. 
<laughs> what do you got? I, I do. It's pretty funny, actually. I mean, I go all the way back to uh, the sports phone days. He was one of the originals, and I came not too long after the fact, after I graduated from school, college. Um, and the first time, you know, after I got hired by sports phone, I think the first time I walked in and I saw Les, he had his feet up on the desk. We had a bunch of TVs that were in the, the little office studio, if you will, and he was watching cartoons. Uh, and, and then after that was like the Munsters or something on. So Les had that childlike uh, ability of his or well persona of his. You know, yeah, I mean, he was an encyclopedia of sports, of course. But, you know, he, he, he just loved all those kind of childlike things. I mean, you know, where he and I bonded almost right off the bat, honestly, was the Three Stooges. I mean, who doesn't like the Three Stooges if you're a guy, for the most part? And, and so Les and I would recite line after line after line from all the Stooges episodes over the years. So, you know, it only grew from there, of course. Uh, you know, he went on to WLS. He was out in the field. Even when we weren't on, in the same platform, and we, you know, we, we certainly uh, went uh, at the same time at the score and at sports phone and other places. But even when we weren't, we, we'd see each other out in the field all the time. I, you know, my claim to fame or shame was that I was in press boxes or arenas all those years. And so was Les. So, you know, we, we certainly over uh, we were at the same time at the same places all those years. If you were to and this is probably I don't I, if Les was listening Rank order less is t- the like the number one team that he'd want to see win in Chicago. Was it the Bears? Because I'm or, or was it? I, I don't even know. Like who's this? Was it the Cubs at its peak? Like Northwestern's a candidate. And then you could throw in UIC. It's hard. Like what was it? Like like for me, I think for you too. It's it's like the Bulls have always sort of been number one. But with less, he had, it was it was unbelievable. Like he 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 loved them all. But I, 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 and he would, he wouldn't, he wouldn't answer a question like that. But could you answer it? Uh, it's a really good question, and it's a hard one to to answer. Honestly, I would have to say probably the Cubs. I mean, he grew up a Cubs fan, obviously on the north side of the city. So I would say probably the Cubs. Although he thrilled to all of them, to be honest with you. Why not? That was that was all part of our all of our domains. I mean, listen, I grew up with all these teams being garbage. And and fortunately, unless as well, when we finally got into the quote unquote industry, a lot of them won. I mean, I've got twelve championships that I covered. Les probably has me beaten by one at least because he covered the sting of which I didn't do back in the early eighties. So yeah, I mean I think he thrilled to all of them, but as a fan I think he grew up mostly as a Cubs fan. So if he had to ask me that question, I guess that's the answer. Now, I can tell you a lot of teams he hated with a passion. Not in this city, though. He hated the Packers. He hated Kentucky basketball. And there was a lot of other people, you know, sports uh, personalities over the years that on the air, and you knew he hated them because he just he would tell you flat out, I hated those people. Um, but, yeah, I think in Chicago, I think overall, probably the Cubs would be number one. Well, rewinding back to what you said about the child thing, because the hating of, of sports teams, I'm like, I'm sitting here like, you're in your 60s. You're talking like you hate Green Bay, like you're a 10-year-old. Like, how do you how do you never sort of mature and realize that what we're doing here is not all that important? But it was always just, like, the most important to him, which I never quite got how he didn't sort of get that part of what we did, like, that he always just sort of remained like an 8-year-old, really. Um, you might be exaggerating on the A, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, yeah, he just had that childlike persona about him. I don't know. I mean, listen, I heard all his lines, hundreds, 
thousands of times. Whatever he said on the air, he said in press boxes or to me personally over all those years. So, yeah, he just had that thing about him. He Again, unique. Ripley's, believe it or not, call it what you want. He was one of a kind. Um, he just is what he is. And, and so many other things. First of all, he did he did that overnight show for the score for I think it was the last 13 years. And I'd fill in for him periodically. And, oh, God, it was so – it wasn't easy to talk to yourself, especially at 2.30 or 3 in the morning when, you know, there's almost nobody calling in or next to nobody listening. You begged for people to call in, but they didn't. So you had to talk to yourself. Les had that capability of talking to himself ad nauseum, if you will. And the same stories on and on and on and on. Um, and, and to do a five-hour show on a nightly basis like he did, and a lot of times – Mark, it was seven or even eight hours because the Cubs game would end early the night before. Not easy to do. Trust me, people say, oh, that couldn't have been so hard. Yeah, it sure was. It was next to impossible. But he did it easily. He was there with the Lee Elia tape that he peddled around the world. Um, he did his show from anywhere and everywhere. I would travel on the road with him. That He was like MacGyver where he would go into business centers at hotels and five minutes to midnight, figure out with a fax machine or a copy machine how to plug into it to make his overnight show possible, possibly happen. Uh, I traveled with him on in cars that, oh, my God, he would have been the best Chicago cab driver of anybody because he knew every shortcut, including alleys in the city, and he drove like an absolute maniac. The rules of the road did not apply to Les when he was behind the wheel. So there, there's so many stories about Les. I could go on and on and on, but I, I need to preface that he had a good heart and a good soul, and I'll always remember that. Would you say he was a happy guy off the air, David? Did you think? Do you think he enjoyed his life? Uh, most of the time, I'd say yes, but not always. I mean, less, it was sometimes were tough. Less, less lived by himself in an apartment uh, out in the western suburbs. Um, he wasn't, you know, he certainly. I don't know which of the two is it Oscar or the other one, uh, Felix. No, he was Oscar. He was the messy one, to be honest <laughs> with you. If you ever saw his car, which was like a file cabinet on wheels, or his house, which was pretty disheveled, to be honest with you. Um, but, but you know, he 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 found the probably the love of his life in his longtime partner and girlfriend, Kathy. And you saw all his pictures on Facebook when he was on vacation, whether in Hawaii or any other place. Uh, I, yeah, that's when he was at his happiest. So I do think he found life outside sports, even though the sports uh, industry and the radio business was his identity. I think he found a little bit of identity outside it as well. I remember talking to him one time and he's telling me about his personal life and that uh, I've been married and divorced three times. I'm like, wait, did you just say you were married and divorced? Three? Yeah, yes. And I got, but I got three to say yes. <laughs> he did indeed and and he wasn't going to go down uh that lane for the fourth time like i said he had his longtime partner kathy who i've been in contact with now over the last few days um and she's heartbroken of course because you know he was such a obvious fixture in her life so you know bless her as well but yeah i think he found happiness certainly with kathy and you know when i say les was out of town listen les could figure out the travel industry like nobody ever. He could figure out the cheapest rates on everything. He helped me. I mean, he introduced me to being a quote-unquote good reporter, Mark, by figuring out all the ins and outs, little tricks of the trade, um, to get you know free things here or to get cheaper rates there. 
In fact, you know, when my a long story short, when my children were very young and I took them to that famous uh, um, water park and amusement park, roller coaster park in Ohio called Cedar Point, which is outside Cleveland. I mean, it was going to be really expensive. And Les goes, hey, let me handle this. So he gets on the phone and he calls the PR office. And I don't know exactly what he said, although after the fact, I emulated him down the road. And he got me three free days there. And I said, how did you do that? He goes, well, I just said you're in the media and you work at ESPN, which I did at the time. And he said, don't worry, it's all taken care of. And sure enough, it was. So he just had that knack about him for always finding either freebies or cheap rates or whatever. He was, like I said, one of a kind. Yeah, I have no idea, and maybe you do, how he had, like, cause it was always, as far as his travel, the dude had more frequent flyer miles than, and then, you know, first-class executives who were flying every day, you know, across the pond. But somehow he had all these miles, which I never understood how he did it, but he had them. Yeah, there's that movie Up in the Air with George Clooney where he becomes the million-mile flyer or something like that. I think Les had 10 million miles. I mean, he could have flown to Pluto for free, to be honest <laughs> with you. I don't know. I don't know how he did it either, but he just had that knack. And he memorized every airline's phone number by heart. I mean, that I know for sure. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Got to call United. Got to call American. All right, that that's not going to work there. Let me, let me go over to Delta or TWA back in the day. All right. Hey, hey, Shu, uh, I know, and you've done a zillion shows with him. I always, I would, it was a highlight for me, like, you know, covering a game, I'm driving home, and and unless has you on, and inevitably you get annoyed with him, and it would just turn into a (laughs) phenomenal conversation. Or the other side, and I haven't done this in a long time, but WGN, uh, the the seat for GN at the Bears game is right next to Les, which is next to you in the press box. So there would always be incredible conversations. Uh, that would go on in the press box because less was less every single time. And, you, you know, as much as you loved him and, the, and everything else, uh, you know, every single time it would get a little bit much. So it, you would, it would gander a reaction. But you, and he would he would never stop, too. It didn't bother him if you were annoyed with him. He'd just keep going and make the next point, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we had this rapport, I guess, for lack of a better term. And, yeah, we always used to make fun of each other and uh, – you know, listen, if you can't make fun of your friends, who can you make fun of, to be honest with you? They're not going to, you know, your enemies will come out swinging at you. Your friends, hopefully, will take it good-naturedly. Sometimes they got a little bit out of hand, but it would be fun. I mean, listen, all those bear games were so nauseous to begin with that, you know, this just sort of took our minds off the terrible play that was on the field in front of us. So, yeah, we had a good time. Sometimes it was shooting fish out of a barrel, to be perfectly honest with you, getting into these sort of uh, tay-to-tays with less, but it was still good-natured more than anything else. And, and it made everybody laugh, including myself. So you know what? It was worth it. Well, and just to wrap it up here, when for p- people like myself starting out and you're now covering games and you would sit down for dinner and it would be you and Les and Bruce Levine, it was – you know, these, you are all our heroes. It's like this, who are the, like, oh my God, I get to sit at this table. And I, and, and less, it was, I don't know. I, I'm thinking about the 98 Bulls was when I really first started to cover teams and everybody went to those games. I mean, the amount of coverage was enormous and less was there with his Morants, which he carried to the end. Uh, but he would you know, it was just, it was, uh, I don't know. I just feel privileged to have sort of been brought up in the business around you guys. So thank you for that shoe. 
Well, you don't have to thank me. You were part of the fabric yourself, so you should, you know, thank yourself for being part of that. But yeah, it was a lot of good memories, and unfortunately, we've lost a couple of friends recently in the industry. I mean, Jeff Dickerson, of course, yeah. from ESPN, a little bit younger, and tragic story there. And I'm so sorry for his family, and now less, of course, and and even before that, uh, Jerry Cook, um, yeah. who, who covered sports in Chicago for a long time. So. You know, we're, we're a fairly small clique, especially in the radio sports reporting industry. And it hurts like heck, to be honest with you, Mark. But again, I'll always remember less fondly. They can go out there and say, I'm an astronomer, I'm an astronomer, I'm a physicist, I'm this or that. Anybody, I mean, I could go out there and declare myself an astron- astronomer as well. Mark Rohde, why do you think you took such a, a liking, a loving to Les Grobstein? How did this happen? Um, man, I don't know. I think it's because when you listen to Les Grobstein, you know that he is game for anything. And when you listen to Les Grobstein, you know exactly what presses his buttons. You know exactly what he would like. There is no gray area with that. And then you couple that with the fact that he is one of the most approachable people in in the radio business, whether it is to fans or to colleagues or to whomever. So I think that that was the draw that I had to him. I felt like we were on a, on a similar frequency, obviously coming at it from different angles in many ways, shapes or form. But I just felt like Les was somebody I could go up to. And in the figure of tense, I could, I could reach out and touch Les. And no matter what we discussed, we'd find a way to make it uh, interesting or less would make it interesting. Do you think that your relationship really took off though with the 445 segment? Cause you would see him every, you guys would talk on the radio basically, you know, five days a week for, I don't know how many years that was going on. Took us to a new level. That is for <laughs> sure. I mean, before then it was occasionally I would go on his show or there'd be some sort of exchanging of words on the air, whether good or whatever the case may be. But yeah, the, the bridge before, right before I would start doing updates uh, at 5 a.m. on the score, whether it was the Mully and Hanley show or the Mully and Haw show, I would go on with less for a good, the final, let's just say 25 to 30 minutes of his show on a daily basis. And it did because we would go, it was every day was its own little adventure, a 20-minute, you know, transition. Well, I guess it really wasn't transition. I don't even know what it was. It was less than <laughs> I talking, and things just would, would, it would end up inevitably in some very strange place, and then the music would play, and we'd have to go, and then we'd do it all over the next day. I was a regular 440 listener. Like I, 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 I was a regular, I, I literally think that I, at one point I'm like, I got to set my alarm. So I'm up at four forty. but then my body clock was just, it was set to it. And, <laughs> and I, and I, and I loved it. I really, it was like, that was the most unique 20 minutes of radio you were going to find all day. And here it is. Grover and Grody for 20, and all of a sudden we're, we could be talking Ricky Sobers. We could be talking. <laughs> I mean, it could, it, it could be, be anybody. It was, I don't know. There were, it, it made me think today, like, you know, I, I, I'm uh, married now, but the, the girlfriend that I had beforehand, 
She was a huge sports fan, the only person that I ever dated who needed to have the radio on at night. So when we would once when she moved to Chicago and we were, you know, dating here, she would she fell in love with Les too. And so we'd go to bed and she'd oh, be like man. she'd be like, Les Grubstein, put on Les Grubstein. Like that's what we did. And so then you would hear you, you would <laughs> We listen. Les was on. He was it, all night on the phone. We got the grubber cooking. It's so funny, man. And I do remember occasionally you would, you know, send a text to me after Les and I had finished our whatever we were doing, and I was always like, "Oh yeah, that what we just did was on a fifty thousand watt radio station where people are listening." And there's my buddy Mark Cartlett listening. It's like, oh yeah, we just you're right. We we were just talking about uh James Scott or Ricky Watts or <laughs> Al Harris or George Cumby or Charles Martin or Larry Bittner or Manny Trio. And it's like, oh my god, yeah. Because you don't even you, you have to go back and listen to the tape to fully appreciate the evolution of of a or the de-evolution of a Les Grobstein conversation because they are not linear. No, they are not. A conversation with Les Grobstein is far from anything that would make sense in a straight line category. So, hundred percent. And you're you've been tasked with, uh, you know, doing a tribute to Les today. You were on nine to noon. You're going to be on uh, tonight doing an overnight show, and you know you learn of the passing. Uh, this morning, I'm like, okay, I'm doing three hours on one of my good friends, and it's a tough day. But like listening to you, you're smiling the, the whole, um, pretty much all the way through it. Well, Les Grobstein's passed away, and we're, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I couldn't. I, I, you're right, you're right, and I couldn't help but be that way. Like I, I, I know that there's supposed to be a certain tone that we have to have when somebody dies, especially somebody as relevant as Les was and somebody who worked as closely to, as I, at a very powerful sports radio station. You know, it, it is supposed to, like, the, the usual kit is to treat it like a wake, and it is, and it is fantastically sad. And I trust me, I've had my moments throughout the day, but as I told somebody else, when I think about Les Grobstein, I smile and laugh. My first instinct is not to be sad or upset. It is to smile and to laugh and to talk sports and to challenge him. It, it, it was. It's just not like the sadness is built in. The sadness is obvious. But to me, at this point, it, it is about the celebrations and our opportunity to get to honor his incredible career, and then and then to honor the people that listened and his family and like i said his closest friends and to laugh our asses off and that's that's because that's what les made us do whether willingly or not we laughed with less and sometimes at less and i i have to i own every bit of that and i i will continue to and i will have my moments in in you know in private or who knows who knows what comes out on the radio eventually, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend like this is something where I'm, you know, in a in a corner crying and not able to handle it. Uh, maybe that'll come, but right now it's all about the smiles. 
Yeah, and I think you just said it right. Like, he put a smile on your face. When anybody in media was talking about Les, be it me and you or you and Schuster or you and whoever, and Les came up, you'd just start smiling. And you'd you'd tell some incredibly weird Grobstein story. Like, I went to his car, and there was, I mean, there was papers coming out of the window, and there was, was, (laughs) he was eating Burger King, and he looked at, like, I, I, you know, on, on this pod, I, I don't even know what order this ended up in, but as you know, I was telling, I was telling Jordan Burnfield that you know, and he, I, I think it was some Cubs game, and he, he, it was the end of the game or whatever. He goes in the cafeteria, and there was like six cheeseburgers left over, and he took he took the cheeseburgers and he ate the meat, but he saved the bread, and then he puts the bread in his briefcase, and he's like, he's like, now I've got, now I've got bread for lunch. Oh, 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 my God. Yeah, there's a million stories like that. So, really, it's not even – it's not all – when you see less, it's not always a smile. Sometimes it's a shaking of the head. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, it's all good. Like, it's okay. If you want to take that bread and put that in your briefcase, good on you. That's totally great. But that is bizarre, <laughs> and that that was that was left to a tease that he he had the, like I, I still people keep saying he's quirky, he's got idiosyncrasies, and I guess those things are true. But I, I still think there's another word for it, and I haven't quite landed on it. Well, and I like that you're in this like search to understand the grabber, and and I'm. <laughs> On that question, too, it's like, don't you know that this is really off that you're taking this bread home? But you're, but you're boasting about it to me. That you're, you're telling me now I've got bread for sale. Like he, there was just, he was not apologetic at all for who he was. Les wanted to beat the system. You know what I mean? He always wanted to beat the system. He wanted to beat the system that says you should have to pay for three meals a day of your own. Uh, he wanted to beat the system, that, and maybe it's not even beating the system. It's just getting that that bonus, like owning the travel world, like having flight miles upon, like billions of flight miles somehow. And for the rest of his life, he was able to travel first class and free into exotic locations because somehow Les Grobstein beat the system or got ahead of the system. And he just loved that idea of, of hacking into things or discovering things, all on the up and up. But it was always something that you really had to dedicate yourself to if you were going to get there. And Grober was the one who, was, who had just enough time in, his, in the way he processed things. He had enough time to delicately collect whatever he needed to collect or do whatever he needed to do to to beat the system, whether that was stuffing crackers in his pocket or flying to Hawaii on free mails, uh, free free uh, free miles, and, and sitting in first class. <laughs> I think you said today, was he a petty thief? Maybe I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, for the record, I know I know of no crimes that less committed. And again, maybe maybe it's not even petty thief. Like, what would be the the rung below the petty thief? You know what I mean? Like, like pre petty thief. You know what I mean? Like he had pre petty thief tendencies that. 
felt like sometimes. Like, ah, I don't know, Les, I'm not sure if we should do that. So, but that that was him, always looking for the looking for a way to to break up the injustice of the the injustice of the system. <laughs> Slightly above bending the rules and below petty thief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, that that's it. Because I certainly don't want to put him in a position where it sounds like. I, I have witnessed him commit crimes because I have not. But there is there is just something about it that has feel has felt at times. Huh, I I just don't know if that crosses the line or not. Right, right. And hey, Les, if you're listening to this somewhere, uh, we love you. That's the bottom line. So good job on however you did whatever you did. Uh, and I'm sure yeah. I didn't. Do, you can do the invitation. <laughs> I did nothing wrong. I, I repeat, I did. A lot of people think I did. I never did that. It's a closed case. End of period. End of paragraph. Period. <laughs> exclamation point. By the way, I, I'm sitting here recording with you, and on WGN TV is you talking on a tribute to Les. I can't hear it, but there you, you got a you got a mustache here, Groats. You, you you're growing. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, yeah, it was right outside uh, the building in which I live. Got to talk uh, talk to a Julian Cruz from WGN. I was on ABC Seven today, and all these places are saying, "Hey, really happy that you're you're taking the time to do this." You know, condolences. I say, "No, I'm honored to do it." And I, like I also said on the radio today, feel like a certain amount of pressure to preside over less and to do it justice. Like I said to his, his family friends and especially colleagues, especially peers of mine like you and tons of people that were listening today and they're going to listen in the overnight too and just making sure that everybody gets their voices heard. Uh, it's I, I love it that you're putting that much into it and whatever. It's it's a natural thing too because this is – I mean, you, you, you've uh... – I don't know. You became the guy for less. It's 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 really it's it's actually it's super cool because I never thought that like like my appreciation for him like this. Does anybody else get it? Like, but and then a lot of people do uh, clearly. And then I seen the tributes today coming from from everywhere. Right? I mean, uh-huh. it it was beautiful, really. It really is, yeah. And I I do consider myself something of a a less historian to some degree i'm also but i'm a less modernist as well because i've been very interested in his recent work as well so yeah i do i i like to be considered the you know taking the torch in terms of being the the one who has uh, kept us all up to speed on less and and also will carry on that torch into the future and, and maybe this is like too inside a radio but that era, when you know, for people like yourself and I who grew up listening to him, and then you start covering games, and there's Les, and he's carrying around this Morant's tape recorder that he carried to the end, and there's Bruce Levine and Jerry Cook and uh, Dave Ennett's on this podcast. Like, the, like there's that era. There's something about those guys that will literally never be duplicated. I, I, I don't know how you like try to sur- surmise or explain who like that crew is, David Schuster, but they're. That, that that will never be duplicated though the whole lot of them no you're right i mean there were there were so many characters obviously r- radio was a larger necessity then and it was not as obviously people can now get into their cars and put on satellite radio and things like that 
it was almost just like the television where there's five or six channels and there was five or six voices that you would depend on too on the radio to either entertain you or inform you and Les Grobstein and that crew, that crew was definitely that era where they, you had to know what Dave Bennett was saying or whoever was doing sports at 15 and 45, a Tom Scher or, you know, a David Schuster on sports. Like you needed those guys and, you know, like they don't need us as much today. They need us now for entertainment, but not as much, information because the information is is everywhere and it's immediate marco you're the man uh have you do you speak to kathy and scott like what's what's uh what's that like for you yeah you know i have uh spoken to both i've I've had uh text conversations with both um kathy you know his longtime girlfriend she's obviously having a really rough time and uh i'm actually going to speak to her on the phone Later on tonight, uh, we're going to talk, but I could tell that she is, is obviously heartbroken and, uh, and lonely and all of that. And, uh, you know, she, as she said, she was in touch with less nine to ten times a day. So um, they had a very special relationship. And then um, her son, uh, or excuse me, Les's son, Scott Robstein, um, yeah, I mean, he has reached out. He says he's been loving everything he's been hearing on the score. He apparently does appreciate the impersonation that I do, and he thinks it's hilarious. So that meant a lot to me because I never want to upset the family or anything like that, whether even in the prime of grabberness, I didn't want to upset the people around him. I guess that's a risky take when you do impersonations of people. But um, but it was it was very heartening to hear that he was a scorehead and, and moreover, a fan of, of mine and specifically doing the Les Grabstein impersonation. So... Um, yeah, I'll keep a real close touch with those two and, um, and obviously be there for whatever they might need. Marco, you, you took less to another level for a lot of people. And, uh, I, I, I just appreciate what you did because he needed to be illuminated in ways that he wasn't, that nobody else was doing and, and you did it. So, uh, the, and we got to learn that Ses, that, that less was a sex addict, which, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, we're definitely gonna have to <laughs> that, the, put that back into the rotation for the overnight tonight. The, that uh, yeah. that that is incredible. That whole conversation, oh. which started out with bananas and how he loves bananas, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. somehow got to a, yes, I love sex. I want to do it oh. all the time. <laughs> oh yeah, and his his. Uh, he wouldn't even say that though. It just, he, we we're asking what his addiction was, and he was the way he would try to clue us in was, uh, well, what do you have to do to make babies? <laughs> what <laughs> are you saying? <laughs> what we think you're saying? How do you how do you reproduce? Oh, you, you are saying what we're thinking you're saying, but in a very less way, only as less could have. And he revealed it and just kind of smirked, and that was that. I mean, he would not talk politics on the air along with a bunch of other topics who were taboo, but he willingly told you <laughs> that, yeah. he, that he was Charlie Sheen. Yeah, I'm a sex addict. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Guess, guess what, kid? I don't smoke, I don't drink, but I love, 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 I mean, love having sex. 
which we could wrap on this. He was telling me I was divorced three times. Three times is what he said. I'm like, less you got. And I said it with a kind of like, you got divorced three times. Well, I got three to say yes. (laughs) Oh, that's just so grabber. Yeah. (laughs) It's like keeping score on women that he got to say yes to marriage to. I don't care that went in that workout. They said yes. That's all that matters. That's it. Hey, less is correct. You can say whatever you want about less, and we have said it all. But less is on his, as far as we know, his fourth very, uh, very significant relationship with a lovely woman. So, Grober has had his way for sure. Well, maybe Kathy was the only one that could keep up. I think we should leave it on that one. Um, all right, Marco, have a great show tonight, and uh, yeah, thanks for making time, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks, Marco. Let's go to Tom from Hangover Park. What's up, Tom? Come on. You remember Tuffy Rhodes? He had three homers in that opening day against Dwight Gooden. Wait a second, Les. This program was recorded on tape for a live audience. Don't compare him to one of the greatest outfielders that ever played the game. That's ridiculous. Roberto Clemente, are you out of your mind? No, you wait a second. You're getting Tom, you're getting carried away here. What? You let anybody on the score. Yeah, including including you. Well, it depends on what you want to say. It's a stat, but who said that that stat is all that accurate? I'm not declaring myself an astronomer. You just said you could. You're not even close. I said I could, but I'm not. If those other people were still alive today, what would they say about these newer people? Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.